Hello and welcome. You're listening to People Not War, a podcast brought to you by Campaign Against Arms Trade. My name is Sienna and I'll be your host. Join me as I catch up with campaigners, activists, community organisers and all-round inspirational people working to end the international arms trade and other intersecting issues. Throughout the series, we'll be drawing links between the arms trade and issues as broad as border controls and policing, colonialism, the crisis in Yemen, the militarisation of education and climate justice, to name just a few, with the hope of showing that all these struggles are interconnected. So today I'm joined by the wonderful Adaronke Apata. Hi there, Adaronke. Hi, thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. So let's give you your biog first and foremost. So Adaronke Apata is a Nigerian-born human rights activist, feminist and LGBTQ plus equality advocate, campaigning for people seeking asylum in the UK. She's the founder of African Rainbow Family, an LGBTQ plus organisation campaigning for asylum seekers and people of African heritage in the UK. Her many human rights related awards include the Sexual Freedom Awards in 2018, Attitude Pride Awards in 2017, Diva Magazine's Heroine of the Year Award in 2015, and she is widely regarded as one of the most influential LGBTQ plus people in the UK. Adaronke, thank you for taking the time of what, out of what I know is your incredibly hectic schedule to chat to us today. So first and foremost, I have to ask everybody this question because it's good too, but also because we're living in strange times, how are you doing? Well, you've only just said it's a very strange time that we are living in. I'm trying to keep my chin up and uh, just to be safe. Mentally, it is draining what we are all going through. The fact that it's not happening to us directly. And what I mean is that we've not experienced any loss does not mean that it does not touch us. And I wish that the deaths or loss of people due to COVID-19 would stop and this pandemic would just um, end at some point. Yeah, so it is depressing for everybody. So it is for me also. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you keeping it very, very real. I think that we can't pretend we're like things are okay, you know. Um, and how are you How are you manage, managing to cope despite the heavy feelings and how are things in Manchester? Because that's where you're based. Yeah, Manchester is uh, under lockdown, tier three. I think there's going to be some kind of upgrade if it's not out yet. So people are just trying to cope and see how they can live within the regulations of the government. Students are still going to school, which is good for them and good for family, except that parents would not be able to go to work. Just like the government said, if people are able to work from home, they should opt for that one, which I think it's okay. Yeah, generally, I've said it before, it's it's a bit depressing and uh, the atmosphere is not as bubbly as it used to be. Manchester, like I've always said, is a very receptive place and it, it is still the same, but you can see that everybody is just trying to be on their own, which is what we need really to, you know, the social distancing just so that we can keep the spread of the pandemic, I mean, the virus down. Yeah, so Manchester is trying to cope. <laughs> Economically, it's not it's not good for Manchester. And I don't think it's good anywhere else. Yeah, definitely. I know vi- I know Manchester to be a very vibrant city, um, but even the most vibrant cities are definitely struggling. So, you know, 
I hear you. I hear you. And I think it's important that we keep talking. So I'm, I'm really happy to kind of be uh, in conversation with you, even though we are not in the same room as we really should be. Um, but hopefully we can still feel each other's warmth via Zoom. <laughs> So, so let's dive into our conversation then. So, you know, welcome to People Not War podcast. Um, you know, at the heart of this podcast is, is very much making the connection between our seemingly different struggles, but actually a lot of things um, underpin them that are quite similar. And I think let's start, although I've given your bio um, and you are an amazing and inspirational person, I have to say, um, but just tell us a little bit more, a little bit more about who you are and what you do at African Rainbow Family. Why does the organisation exist? Well... My name is Adironke Apata, like you have introduced me. And uh, I am the founder of African Rainbow Family. African Rainbow Family came to fruition 2014, sometime I think July or June, around that period. And it was just me thinking about what can we do to support people who are seeking asylum, who are also black and who are LGBT and just to say to ourselves that it's okay to be black to be an LGBTIQ person and to flee persecution and wanting safety somewhere so that's how African Rainbow Family started I just wanted a space for us just to be and just talk about issues support each other like peer support group but today, African Rainbow Family has over 500 members. To date, we have supported nearly 350 people to secure safety in terms of their claims for sexuality or gender identity. And we have four branches in Manchester, Leeds and London. And we keep getting referral every day. That's how African Rainbow Family came to be. But our mission in African Rainbow Family really is to build a supportive community where black people, people from the black Asian minority ethnic group can come together and really understand themselves. Because from my experience, I found out that other groups that are not led by people who are affected by the issues, they are doing great jobs, don't get me wrong, but they do not really understand what we're going through. And that's one thing that is quite unique in African Rainbow Family, because we are all people who are seeking asylum or who have been granted refugee status and who are LGBT. IQ plus. So we run it by ourselves, we lead it by ourselves, and we do everything by ourselves. Although we have friends who are not um, seeking asylum, who are either British or other part of the world, who are supporters of us, who are volunteers, who are our friends, allies that we work with. So that's where the building a supportive community comes in, really. Yeah, and our, our, our vision is to have a world without prejudice. And it's a big vision, 
I know we'll get there, but it might take time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's important to have these big visions, right? We want a world of with peace and we want a world without war. Um, and again, we want a world without prejudice. So these these big things can happen. Um, again, with organizations like yours. And you've actually touched on an important conversation that we will have a little bit later around the issue of actually um, our movements being led by those who have lived experience, close experience of, of these issues. Um, I wanted just to quickly talk about language because actually you're someone who you know I know I know you outside of um I know you in lots of contexts really and I know that you're always very keen on saying people who are seeking asylum rather than asylum seekers um and I think that's subtle but like really powerful so can you talk to us about why you're very deliberate about the language that you choose and why you you want us to kind of speak of people in that way um in 2017 African Rainbow Family actually launched what we call the Manchester Declaration campaign is on our website. This is to change the narrative and stop saying people seeking asylum, but saying that people... Uh, <laughs> stop saying asylum seekers. <laughs> it's a good thing. I'm not used to that anymore. <laughs> but to keep saying people who are seeking asylum. And the reason why that came about is when you look at... Uh, people who are fleeing one thing or the other, either war or as a result of your sexuality or gender identity, these are human beings to start with. And they flee because there's something happening to them that makes them to flee. They are seeking sanctuary in whichever country that they find themselves. But over the time, the word asylum seeker has been kind of associated with someone who is coming to grab something who is coming to either displace you or not make you um, have control of your environment and then it's got this negative connotation to it it does not actually identify the human being in us and looking at individuals who are seeking asylum you will find out that most of them have good jobs back home. They're well-educated back home. In most of the countries where people flee from, there is no benefit system there. I am not against the benefit system in this country or any other country where it operates because it's there for good intentions. But it is then seen as if people are coming to come and take benefits which is not the case. So with this negativity that is kind of associated with people who are seeking asylum, people are being seen, um, looked down upon. Even this kind of percolates into the um, establishments also in terms, of, in terms of taking decision on people's application because they don't see the person in you. They see figures, they see papers, they see documents. And they see people who are nothing. So this kind of made me to start thinking that there should be a change in this narrative. Because we have doctors, we have engineers, we have people who are graduates, we have people who have masters, people who have PhD, nurses, and all of that, who are seeking asylum. So why do we have to first see them as their problem? Why can't we just define them as human first? 
and then look at the problems that they have and see how we can resolve all those problems where we can. So this is what led me to campaigning about changing that narrative to people seeking asylum. That's very, very powerful. Seeing people first and foremost as human and then looking at the problems that they have. Um, and I think that's really powerful. So thank you for, 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 for that. I'm someone who always talks about the fact that language really matters. So um, it's important that we're deliberate with it. obviously started to kind of touch on you know the central issues that you are campaigning on and I think let's talk about um the hostile environment this is something that you know is hopefully something a lot of people listening would have heard about already but at the same time you know a lot of people they live very different lives from well we live different lives from each other so maybe they're they're quite sheltered from some of these issues so can you just briefly tell us what is the hostile environment and and kind of um why is this something that is affecting people in the UK and why is it something that actually a lot of us should be uh, educated about and care about? Well, the hostile environment is self-explanatory from the words and I get it that some people don't understand what it is because they're not involved in it, because they don't have any reason to be seeking asylum or, or wanting to reunite with their family or being an immigrant. For them, we cannot blame them. But for us who are affected by that, the hostile environment, we understand how it affects us. And this is why it's good to talk about it, so that other people can understand what it is all about. It is just an organized chaos. That's the way that I would put it. It's a deliberate, deliberate organized chaos from the establishment just to make it um, uncomfortable for people to remain in this country. And that is driven by politics, either one party wanting to please their supporters or their members and wanting to remain in power to kind of convince them that they are doing everything in their power to reduce the number of immigration. And this led to decisions badly taken that affect human beings, that goes forever. Sometimes it does not, you, you can't get over the effects of this. I'll give you an example where people used to be, women used to be detained in Yaswood until very, very recently. And detention has, does, does not make any sense. When you look at the effects of detention, mentally it affects people. It scares you forever. Physically, it does not help you because some people walked into detention centers. Then when they are being released or being deported, they have to use walking stick or wheelchair. We have seen women who were pregnant. Personally, I, I saw one that was pregnant and she was complaining. Nobody attended to her because they were attending to her immigration history, not her person. A pregnant woman. At that time, they were still detaining pregnant women until her water broke. That was when they believed that she was having cramps. Then they brought a wheelchair to take her out. 
to the hospital. So these are all the hostile, the hostility is there. They don't treat you as a human being. They just treat immigration. We don't want you here. Because they were saying to her that she was only saying those things so that she could be released until the water broke. Normally, if she was not in detention or if she was a British citizen or if she was out here in the society, I don't think anybody would wait for her water to break first before attending to her, except if it was an emergency and everybody would know that that was an emergency and she would be taken to the hospital for, for care. So these are the kind of deliberate things that they do to create this hostile environment where people would say, no, don't go to Britain, no, don't go to the UK, because it is not a place that is welcoming. They're now making doctors, nurses, landlords, they've turned them into border guards, even banks. The, these are all the things that they do that make you to think, oh my goodness, is this an environment that you want to stay in? If I don't know why they call it hostile environment, I think it is a toxic environment. That is the best way to say it. That's what they are creating. Not just hostile, it is toxic. For instance, in the last 10 years, we've had over 130,000 people being deported from this country. And it's not like all these people exhausted their appeal rights. There are some of them that were still in the process of appealing. We know what justice is all about. People should be given the right to appeal their case or take their case to the court of law until when it is exhausted. But a few, uh, part of those over 130,000 people were not given such chance. So if someone was whisked away and deported, they've turned them away from their family. There are some people who have been deported and their children are still here in the UK. Either staying with some relatives or friends or taken into care. There's nothing wrong in somebody staying in care or having family, but it is not what they wanted to do. Yes, that is it. And the impact of those kind of actions on children, on the mothers, on the fathers forever. Some of them are not even see their children again because they won't be able to come back here. And by the time that the children want to find out who is my mom or who is my father, they might not even be able to trace them. Or maybe some parents are dead by the time the children want to, re to say, okay, I need to look for my parents. So we are breaking down the society. We are breaking down families. We are causing mental health problems amongst the society. Then we look at broken homes. We say we have people from broken homes. We have people from disadvantaged background. When in reality, this hostile and toxic environment, it's creating all of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important that we, we frame the hostile environment as a policy of repression, as a it toxic is. policy. Um, and I think we'll talk a bit more about other kind of tactics of repression. You started to talk about the, the way actually that ordinary people, such as teachers, such as, you know, bank staff, um, such as... Um, nurses and doctors are all kind of being informal uh, border security guards right um, and I think this is something that we we'll, we need to like um, come back to in a bit more detail and you've actually started to talk about the trauma of Yarswood and I, I definitely um, 
know that you have lived experience of that and kind of on that um, as a wrong case. So just thinking about you, you started to mention the kind of unique ways almost that women in particular and other marginalized genders are suffering. Um, and obviously a, a, a key focus of your campaigning is the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I think it'd be useful just to talk about maybe like the unique challenges or like the unique ways that militarized borders and the issue of kind of like borders and migration affects kind of women or marginalized genders or LGBTQ communities, especially because you, you know, there are just unique challenges when you're marginalized on, on several different fronts. Yeah, uh, 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 I've said before how that affects women because it's not just women, even men. You want a family unit, the one that has been torn away from their children. Mentally, it would affect them. They might not recover for life. The children would not recover for life. Look at women who have been deported or been kind of detained. Most of them must have been through some kind of torture before, especially those, <clears throat> excuse me, especially those who have uh, experienced gender-based violence back in where they came from. And when you then detain them. It's another kind of trauma. Some flee honor killing. It's it's there's a lot in there that we can unpack the kind of effect. Yeah it, it's rather the same, it's just that it's got another layer on it. People are sometimes detained in wrong detention centers especially for the trans people. Some are, the trans men could be taken into a wrong detention center. And when they are in the detention centers, most LGBTIQ people get persecuted again. I was, I was subjected to homophobic attack in Yaswood by fellow detainees from my country, Nigeria. It was investigated in it, so it's well recorded. So when you look at the fact that people who are seeking asylum based on their sexual orientation and gender identity have been detained and deported back to countries where they can face imprisonment, sometimes death, then it tells you that that policy is not a policy that is that has humanity in it. It is an inhuman policy. And this is part and parcel of the hostile environment. This is the kind of effect that it has on people. For instance, Nigeria is a country that's got 14 years imprisonment if you're an LGBTIQ person. The marriage bill, when it came, same marriage bill, it's, it's, it's a law that, if, in fact, you can't even say you are an LGBTIQ person, you cannot identify as one in Nigeria. Otherwise, you'd be sent to jail for 14 years. That is if you're lucky before the mob would have to take their own uh, justice on you. And you can't have an organization supporting LGBTIQ people because one, nobody can even identify as one. So if there's any organization that is seen operating on the ground, they will be closed down and the people there would go to jail. So it is kind of horrific knowing that. 
the government here knows about all of this, and yet they send people back to those environments. Yeah. The, the, the effect is, is so much. Marginalization is... I don't think it's our fault that we belong to um, a marginalized group. Yeah, but we get punished for being one of the marginalized group, either because we are black, because of your sexual orientation, because of your gender identity, because you're a woman, or because of your religious belief or political belief, and so many other things. And that's why it's important to frame these conversations as understanding, first and foremost, that society marginalizes people. So actually, when we think about language as well, um, it's that people are marginalized, um, and that actually, if you think about being black and brown, we're part of a global majority. And I think that's why I'm I'm very against kind of... Um, you know, in the UK, we use a lot of language around kind of like black and minority ethnic or um, black and, uh, you know, Asian and minority ethnic groups or BME, BAME, all these kinds of things that minoritize you. Um, I think all of that um, is, is psychologically quite damaging as well and simply just not true. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really important. Again, these conversations, they need to be rooted and framed in understanding um, colonialism, is understanding racism, understanding Britain's role in, in those things as well. And actually, the fact that you would say that you know, Britain knowing kind of the hostile environments that exist in other countries and still sending people back. It's not a surprise to me because it's part and parcel. It makes perfect sense. Understanding if you think about the history of, of homophobic laws, actually, in some countries. Again, colonialism is, is often an undercurrent behind the history of those as well. So I think yeah. framing is everything. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, there is a flight, there's a chattered flight that is due. On the 2nd of December. Yeah to take people back to Jamaica. We all kind of know about the Windrush scandal. Yeah. It's not like it's been addressed fully. Some of the people that were caught up in that died in the process of fighting for their freedom. Some that were supposed to get compensated for, they've not even got their compensations up until now. And they keep putting people on charter flights. It's not just Jamaica. Charter flights used to go to other countries. My country, Nigeria, it used to be, I think, every month or every two months that they return people on charter flights. And also to Pakistan and other parts of the world. It is just that the one of Jamaica, I think, came to light because of the Windrush scandal. Because most of these people are British people. They are black British. Just because one person's committed one offence, then the next thing is they have to be deported. But they are citizens of this country. So does that mean that if someone that is not black commits an offence, you would have to ask them to go where? Where would you ask them to go to? But just because these are black and they're from Jamaica or any other country, then they have to go back, even though they are British citizens. So I think all of this needs to be looked into. I think it's the same measure that they would have for other British citizens that they should have for them. Like, take them to the court of law, try them. If they are guilty, Give them the appropriate sentence. 
we're fully aware that um, you know there are records that have been destroyed and there's a lot of kind of I'd say deliberate chaos around this scandal and it's ongoing and you know although Windrush is one of the most kind of infamous scandals but you know a lot of this stuff has been happening for years and years and decades to to people um, when we think about yeah this this deliberate displacement um, and chartered flights and I think it is really powerful though to see that there's increasingly a lot more um, resistance against stuff like that we've got a lot of you know um, allies shall we say as well kind of getting involved and like doing a lot of migrant solidarity work and putting themselves on the line um, to to physically to take direct action and kind of physically stop these flights. family and similar organizations the fact that you have <clears throat> key demands for for organizations and they include bringing in into these kinds of policies right and also including bringing into policies around kind of the the no recourse to public funds um the turning of issues such as seeking housing and employment education and healthcare um and trying to access any other form of kind of public service into in service into what you were saying um as an opportunity to surveil people basically as an opportunity to turn regular folk into border agents um and I suppose it'd be useful just to think about, you know, why is it important that we campaign fiercely against these policies? And actually, how is this something that, um, although should be definitely led by um, migrant voices and people who have lived experience of, of detention, um, but how can we all get involved to support, basically, especially those of us in, in positions where we don't have that um, lived experience? Why should we campaign fiercely to support? I, in my um, earlier answers I think I've mentioned that African Rainbow Family is building a supportive community and what that means is us working with allies because although we go through all this hostile environment all of these policies we face all of the effects from them sometimes when you are fighting you can be very very weak you probably would need someone to lift you up. And that is why it is important that we have allies working with us. At the same time, we would want our allies to recognize this has been very... Um, we don't have any problem with that in African Rainbow Family. People working with us, they know that we will be at the center of the fight but they would be with us and we would tell them, because I've said earlier on that, they really don't understand. They have good intentions. They want to work with us. They want to end the hostile environment. It's like you're going to, I mean, if I say to you, for instance, that I have pain, if you don't know the kind of pain, you might be, you want me to be free of pain. And the prescription that you will give to me might not be the right prescription. It's not because you mean badly, but because you want me to go off pain. But you really don't understand my pain. So this is the angle that we are coming from. Why we always stress that we want people who are going through this, the, the, the problem to be at the center of the fight. And then our allies to listen to us, we will tell them this is what we are facing. Then they can say, okay, do we do this together? Will this work? Will that work? I'll give you an example. Um, Yaswood Detention Centre. 
when I was there for over one year, I led a demonstration <laughs> inside the detention. And I was working with other organizations from outside. And although people were released at the time, but I was one of the people sent to prison for leading a peaceful demonstration. But when I came out, I started a campaign to shut down the place because it was just not good for purpose. It was not serving any purpose. Instead, it was destroying people's lives. I know that the government and some of our allies, they talk about, sorry, some of our allies, they talk about the effect, the economic effect, how much it costs the taxpayers, which I understand. But I do not look at that angle because it is a deliberate action taken by the policymakers to spend taxpayers' money in that way. I look at the human effect. I look at the mental health effect. I look at the physical health effect. I look at the families. I look at our friends, our, our, our the people that we don't even know, but who just get to know that, oh, somebody has been whisked out of the house and taken to detention. Do you know that psychologically it affects them, but there's no way you can measure it. It does affect them. For some of us that were detained or who had friends outside, they would have to take time off work to come and visit us. Like I live in Manchester. Yaswood is in Bedfordshire. You know how many hours that would take. So for a friend of mine or a neighbor or my family to come and see me, that's a whole day or two days off work. If you take that out of the economy, maybe once every month, just from me, where they detain over 400 women. So if you go around 400 people, see how much that will take off the economy. And the people that come to see us, like I said, it's subtle but they, they there's psychological effect on them. These, again, are part of deliberate tactics. You know, it reminds me of, I don't know if you did watch it, and you, it, you may not have wanted to, but um, there was a documentary on a while back called Sitting in Limbo, um, if you heard about it. And I, I remember it being really powerful. So it was obviously given a, a particular kind of, like, example of someone who'd been affected by the Windrush scandal. Um, and, you know, just watching this, the way that they portrayed the psychological effects on the family, um, of the person as well as the person themselves I think is like really powerful and again sending you extremely far away from anybody in order to isolate you and and leave you in absolute despair is all part of this this deliberate tactic um, of repression but luckily yes would now with the help of people who joined that campaign when I came out does not house women any longer and actually as, as part of your um, impressive uprising that you you led um, Adaronke, you actually then, following your release, founded Manchester Migrant Solidarity. And I wonder if you wanted just to tell us briefly about, about that network. And obviously it's probably closely related to African Rainbow Family, but different. So a bit about that would be really helpful. When I came out of detention, the first thing I did was Manchester. Well, I had another group that I formed, but I had to close that group down because when I was in detention, I was working with this organisation. So I didn't really know much about them. Until when I came out, then we started having close um, relationship. And then I found out that there are some of the values that I didn't really like. 
So I had to close the branch of their own organization that I started in Manchester. So I started Manchester Migrant Solidarity. And when we started, I had to bring in other people because what Manchester Migrant Solidarity does is to bring people who are not even migrants or immigrants or people seeking asylum together in order to challenge this hostile environment. And I was able to talk to a few people during my campaign and people joined. And wherever you come from, as long as you identify as an immigrant, you're welcome in Manchester Migrant Solidarity. And that was what we were doing and we were doing the campaign through Manchester Migrant Solidarity. We went to give her submissions oral submissions, written submissions, into detention, the use of indefinite detention, because it's only in the UK. Yeah, that's something that's important to highlight as well, that it's only in the UK we have this disgusting, inhumane policy of indefinite detention. I, I sit down and look at it all. Then it brings me to think about modern slavery. Yes. Because that was something else I picked up from being detained for over one year. And the reason why I came up with that phrase is the fact that I was working and paying tax and then I, that I will never claim back. But I was sent to prison for that. Because if you're seeking asylum, you're not allowed to work. But I did work because I didn't have any state support. So I went to prison for breaking the law. But when I was taken to detention, I was offered a job by the same government who has not given me my papers. And you know how much I was paid? Three pounds for three hours. That was one pound an hour. And my job was the most prestigious uh, prestigious job in the detention centre, which was seven the immigration staff, seven other detainees. Was this something you did every day? So It was a shift, yeah. Every week I had three, I do three hours a day or three hours a week, I can't remember now. But I know that I was being paid three pounds for one shift. So I think I was getting about nine pounds a week, so to say. So... Yeah, this is this is a job that should have been given to someone on a minimum wage, at least. But I was paid a pound an hour. And I said mine was the most prestigious, because if you, if you, if you serve, it's very, very prestigious. But there are other ones that clean. They get paid 50p an hour. And do you know why this... The rationale behind that is they want to they want us to maintain a positive mental health whilst we're being detained. Then they give us the job and paid us that. So to me, it is more than day slavery. It's the contradictions, it's the cognitive dissonance of it that just makes me feel it's, sick. The UK is arresting people in the society out there who they believe are taking people through modern-day slavery. 
and they are trying to secure or making safe the people who are victims or who are survivors. And then they deliberately put some in detention to exploit them. Then I, it beggars my belief. I just cannot get it around my head. Yeah, I think the phrase is definitely, definitely beggars belief, you know. And this idea of detention, um, you know, it's a form of imprisonment. So detention, imprisonment in whatever setting, whether it's a prison or a detention centre, it's all a form of modern day slavery. Um, and as a run, I just kind of want to, um, linking to that actually, but just thinking about policing because... Um, it's you know it's 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 topical it's it's always topical but obviously you know as well as everything going on with covid um we've seen another kind of uprising around kind of black lives matter um and then you know you're nigerian as well so i'm, I'm quite keen to kind of just get your viewpoint on this as well so we've seen the nsars um and swat unit protests again led by incredible amazing young people and i i definitely say that the uprisings in nigeria are very much part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you might have noted as well that like at CAT, we actually did some investigations and put in some um, freedom of information requests to just confirm the role of Britain in all of this, because you know what, colonial hangover is real. And of course, with no surprise, Britain was very much um, involved in terms of training the, this unit and, 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 and offering some kind of forms of financial support. And so that's actually quite a big scandal. And so just from your viewpoint, um, as someone who is Nigerian and Nigerian campaigner, just kind of, um, I wonder though, and obviously, but you are based in the UK. So I just wonder if kind of the NSARS um, moment has really kind of had any effect on your work and, and thinking about kind of Black Lives Matter as well. Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Because it's related um, to these issues of kind of borders, but just as an issue in of itself, just how has it kind of affected you or what are your thoughts? It, it does affect me because Nigeria is my country. And Black Lives Matter is a thing that affects every black person. And not just black people standing up for Black Lives Matter. We have people from all sorts of backgrounds who recognize the injustice on black people. And they thought it should come to an end. They joined in that movement. And I applaud the people in Nigeria. I have never thought it would happen that the young could say, this is enough. Because if you look at the history of Nigeria, there are some people who have been in politics, in government positions, since when I was born. And I'm 53 years old. And they are still there. It's not their birthright. Nope. And it's not, a, it's not a dictatorship in theory, the country. So what is no. this all about? Well, kind of recycling themselves and still being in government. So they have seen it as part and parcel of their life. They cannot live it. So if they see anyone who is asking for a change, they feel threatened. And the next thing they do is to ask their powerful allies such as Britain, to help them out, which they do. You've just mentioned how Britain is being complicit in training SARS. And what was SARS doing? Killing Nigerians, innocent ones. So it came up as a unit that was supposed to be anti-robbery unit. 
But everybody knows about corruption in Nigeria. If you want your neighbor killed, just go bribe somebody who works in SAS and label them as, a, as an armed robber. They go after them. They get them killed. And I'm sure that the UK government knows about this. If they do not know, they must have heard about it. And what do they do to investigate all of this? That's one thing that I think they need to answer to. Their own role in empowering them to be able to kill. Yeah. Empowering them to kill their own people. But these are all young people. When our young ones have been killed, who's going to be the future? Because I believe that if you grow old and old and old, you die, then the young ones will spring up. But when you start killing the able-bodied young people, where is the future of that country? When you kill young people of any kind, you know, there's something really dark about that. Yeah. Kill your own citizens of any age, of any ilk, there's something very dark about that. It then tells you that you are looking at another 20, 30 years where there will be no leaders. Yeah, that's the, that's the main point you're making, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the... It's t- it's, there's nothing there. So they're going to be back... There's nothing out, the next generation. And then they would not grow. And that is a system of, of, of oppression, keeping us permanently down there so that we do not grow. And this is what you see in what they call disadvantaged homes. People get criminalized for little things. Then they cannot get a job. And when they cannot get a job, they cannot have a good future. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're actually bringing us on to kind of um, I can't believe it. it's already almost time for us Sorry. to close our conversation. <laughs> no, it's like the passion is so real, but actually it's a really useful segue into thinking about this question of, you know, more generally, um, certainly thinking about kind of borders and policing, but like more generally, why is it important as a Ronke for, for people listening and any of us who are campaigners, activists, community organisers, or just people who care in this world? Why is it important for us to keep drawing connections between our struggles, um, no matter how different they may seem? Why is kind of that interconnectivity of struggle important to understand? There can be no good answer than the fact that there is no one single issue. As Audrey Lord reminds us. Yeah. No. Because Because we don't live single issue lives. We are uniquely diverse. If you are not an LGBTI person, you will be black or you will be white. And if you're white, you might be of lower class or of higher class. So there are so many things there. If you are not a trans person, you will be a woman, you will be a man. So we are all interconnected as human beings. We have many axes of identity. Yeah, this is where we all need to come together and kind of... begin to the the movement is there already but we just need to push ahead and make sure that we achieve what the movement needs to achieve absolutely so this is just the main thing because i'm talking as a black person i'm talking as, as a woman i'm talking as a lesbian i'm talking as an immigrant i'm talking as everything that you can think about me that makes me a whole person and there will be other people that will share the same or a few of mine identity. So we are interconnected. We should form a good front. 
to be able to break down all these barriers so that we can live and achieve what we should achieve, our potential. Absolutely. And that's, that's the bottom line, whether it is kind of specifically that you're campaigning against the arms trade or specifically thinking about kind of um, asylum or detention or, or borders. Actually, if you um, do not have kind of a diversity of tactics, diversity of voices in your movement, um, I think it's going to be very difficult for it to be sustainable and it's going to be very difficult for us to win. So. so inspirational and like you know your your story is incredibly powerful um and and being able to to share a space and talk about kind of your first-hand lived experience of these issues that can be quite abstract for other people I think is incredibly humbling um can you just tell us how people I know you started to talk a little bit about it but can you just tell us kind of how people who are listening those who may come across this conversation can actually support organizations like African Rainbow Family is there anything that they can do that you're getting up to that people can get involved in but how can we continue to support you in in a very kind of active way yeah there's a lot we can do despite the lockdown if there's any campaign out there for any kind of issue, I would ask people to join in. We might not be able to gather physically because of our own safety, but we know how powerful the social media is. They work. For some of us that are not very good in using social media. <laughs> you recently took over Ben Hardy's account though, so yeah. <laughs> he's managed an IG takeover. <laughs> that, that, that was a very, very good experience for me. I, I've never done that before. Even though I have a, an Instagram account, I think I've only posted two or three times. I didn't know. <laughs> I know, you had to get, get to grips with Instagram all day, but you did yeah. it, it was great. Yeah, so people should get involved. We should speak to our MPs where we need issues to be addressed because we all voted for them to work on our behalf. Well, maybe not yes. all of us voted for them. But, um, <laughs> yeah, f for some of us that voted... We want them to work for us, whichever MP, whichever, whichever MP that you vote for. It might not be the government that is on now. You might not vote for the government, but at least maybe you voted for your own, for your own MP. So the MP should be able to do something. If there's any um, one, because I've always said this, if you come across any LGBTIQ person seeking asylum, and not just the LGBTIQ person, anyone seeking asylum who is in danger of being deported or who is an immigrant and in danger of being deported, please and please support them. Look at the Stansted 15 that they're going through their appeal now. They didn't have anything to do with asylum. None of them was at risk of being deported. But it stood up because they knew it was going to be dangerous for those people to be deported and they went and did what they did so these are the kind of actions that we're asking people to take you don't have to go to that extreme if you cannot but there are little things that you can do that can help people and then like organizations like us we, we are led by ourselves. 
but we are lucky that we are getting people now who are thinking of training us or working with us, pointing us in the right direction to have good governance and all of those and all of those. So these are all the ways that people can work with us, be volunteers with us, practical way of work, of helping us. Donation to our work is also important. Yeah, so people can go to our website. They will see many ways of how they can donate to us. And there are other organizations too doing brilliant work that would also need financial support or the kind of support that we also need. So I would just say people should just look into one cause or the other. We've had brilliant people responding during this pandemic to African Rainbow Family. People have been fundraising online for us. People have done their birthday. They've done all sorts of things to raise money for us. And we're very, very grateful. We went to, we were able to take a, over a whole day. <laughs> of a <laughs> celebrity's <largest>. account. <laughs> yes. That, that's a practical way of supporting our movement. There is still good in this world, Adaronke, even yeah, though it so can be easy to we, forget. <laughs> definitely, we have, we have good people. We have good people out there. It is not like everybody in the UK or elsewhere is horrendous or bad. No. No. It will be very, very wrong to say that because I have come first class, I mean first hand, to see people show love to me. Even when it was very, 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 very depressing. Very, very harrowing. People have shown me love. People that I don't even know. So we have very nice people who can stand up for good causes and they are doing so. And that's what I would encourage everyone to do. Do not just look at African Rainbow Family, but look at us and look at other groups too that you can help. Fantastic. And um, people can go to africanrainbowfamily.org for more um, to kind of find out how to keep meaningfully support. So thank you so, so much, um, Adaronke, for for joining us today. Um, And that, my friends, brings us to the end of our conversation. Tune in next time as we catch up with another inspirational comrade. And don't forget, you can listen to episodes of People Not War everywhere you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify and Acast. And of course, you can read the zine of the same name on the CAT website. Simply visit cat.org.uk. Stay in touch by following us on social media. You can find out, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And if you're enjoying our content, why not also consider becoming a supporter? More about that on our website. But for now, my friends, until next time.